Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you're here. Thanks for choosing the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Your quest for podcasts of the paranormal, supernatural, and the unexplained ends here. We invite you to enjoy all our shows we have on this network. And right now, let's Let's start start with with Shades of the Afterlife with Sandra Champlain. Welcome to our podcast. Please be aware the thoughts and opinions expressed by the host are their thoughts and opinions only and do not reflect those of iHeartMedia, iHeartRadio, Coast to Coast AM, employees of Premier Networks, or their sponsors and associates. We would like to encourage you to do your own research and discover the subject matter for yourself. Hi, I'm Sandra Champlain. For over 25 years, I've been on a journey to prove the existence of life after death. On each episode, we'll discuss the reasons we now know that our loved ones have survived physical death, and so will we. Welcome to Shades of the Afterlife. Our episode today is part book review, part reading from a book, part hearing from a scientist who studies mediums and part who knows what else. (laughs) I was doing a little search on afterlife books and I came across a French book that is translated into English. It's called The Test, Incredible Proof of the Afterlife, written in 2018 by Stéphane Alix. Let me tell you about the author. Stéphane Alix, A-L-L-I-X, is a French investigative journalist and best-selling author. He is a former war reporter and documentary director, founding member and president of the French Institute of Research on Extraordinary Experiences. Stéphane Alix became interested in the question of the afterlife after the death of his brother in Afghanistan. He has written several books that became bestsellers, including The Test. I would like to start with reading his conclusion. 
if you're anything like me, sometimes we read the end before we read the beginning. Writing this book changed my life. I had what was perhaps a naive idea about communication with the dead, a number of questions, and many preconceived notions. Working on this book, performing these tests, and spending many hours in ongoing discussion with mediums allowed me to enter into their lives, into the intimacy of their perceptions, and to better understand and sense in myself that access to the invisible world is logically possible. Beyond the positive and incontestable results of the test, the similarity of the information about my father's life, death, and personality, as well as the mention of deceased members of our family, and the countless identical details that each medium provided without fail, together form the proof that my father was never absent during the seances. Each of the six mediums described the same person to me because that person is alive. The six mediums entered into communication with my father. My father, like all of the people we love who have left us, is still alive somewhere else. The reality is vaster than we are able to imagine. Death does not exist. The bonds of love persist and hold strong. We are bound to one another forever. I don't know about you, but this fills me with energy. That's from Stefan Alix. That's his conclusion. And when he mentions seances, in French, seance means meeting or a sitting. So here in America or in the UK or other English-speaking places, when we have a sitting with a medium, the French call having a seance with a medium. Let me just share a few reviews on this book because I think they're fascinating. The stories, conversations, interviews, and experiences related in the test have convinced me that there is life after death, partly because the author is a journalist who actually devised this semi-scientific test to see if there might be any truth to the afterlife with his dad, who was afraid of dying partly because what he has written rings true with my own professional experiences. I'll read one more. I enjoyed this book very much, mostly because of its very different approach to the possibility of contact with the deceased. It also explained the different experiences of mediums when they establish contact. Each one of them has his or her own unique approach. I felt it was mostly a study into the function of how mediums work and how they acquired their gifts. On the other hand, it revealed how that contact seems to work from the other side. Overall, this book is a different approach to death, afterlife, mediumship, and grief, and is refreshing. As you know, I won't be able to read you the whole book during this episode. You might like to pick it up afterwards, but I'll do my best to pick out significant segments that I think will make a difference for you. You may wonder why it's called The Test. So let me begin reading. This is from the introduction. When my father passed away, I placed four objects in his casket. I spoke about it to no one. I then interviewed mediums who claimed to be able to communicate with the dead. Would they discover what the objects were? This is the test. 
My father, Jean-Pierre Alix, passed away on June 16, 2013, at the age of 85. He was an admirable father. I loved him and still do. He taught me to be a man whose word and sense of honor meant more than anything else. He encouraged me to become a person who expected as much from myself as I did from other people, and to be proud of my heritage. He taught me to be curious, to know how to use my best judgment, but also to listen without judging too quickly. He showed me by his example that life is astonishing, and that it is precisely this ability to be astonished, whatever one's age, that saves us from despair. As you read what follows, you will understand why I think my father is far more than the mere subject of a particular experiment, namely the test I put forward to six mediums, two men and four women. He is my partner, the invisible but central character in this book, to which he contributed at times with difficulty, often with emotion, and even at certain times with humor. When he was alive, we had spoken about life and death on several occasions. In 2001, I had lost a brother in an accident in Afghanistan, and the subject was ever-present in my family. We had both mentioned how interesting it would be, after his death, to try and undertake this research together. On the day of my father's burial, I was alone in the room at the funeral parlor. A few minutes before the casket would be closed and sealed, I took four objects along with a little note and hid them under the fabric covering his corpse, out of sight. From that moment and until the casket was closed, I remained next to it to reassure myself that no one could see the objects concealed against his body. I am absolutely certain to have been, until today, the only person aware of the presence of those objects in his casket. On that Saturday morning of June 22, 2013, I left the following things next to my father. A long, thin paintbrush. A tube of white acrylic paint. His compass. A paperback copy of The Tartar Step by Dino Buzzati, one of his favorite books and a small note slipped inside an ecru-colored envelope. I took the time to photograph each object just before putting it into the casket. Then I spoke to my father, looking at the empty space above him rather than at his body. I explained to him what I was doing, and that his task would consist of telling the mediums what the objects were. A little over a year later, I asked several mediums if they would be willing to participate in a small experiment, though I remained very evasive as to what the subject of this experiment was. At this point, the author goes into a discussion about mediums. He talks about the skepticism, but he also goes into talking about the works of two scientists who have really researched mediums. One is Dr. Gary Schwartz, who you heard from a few episodes ago, and the next one is Dr. Julie Beischel. And instead of reading this part of the book, I've got a clip you're going to hear a little later from Julie Beischel. Let's continue with the author. By the virtue of all the research that has been done and that I myself have conducted in recent years, life after death is today, 
in my view, more than a solid hypothesis. For over 10 years, I have been carrying out my investigation across the world, meeting researchers, physicians, men, women, and children who have had incredible experiences of contact with the deceased. I have been working and rubbing shoulders with mediums for years. All of this time, I have remained in my role as a thorough and objective journalist. It is precisely this approach that has led me to recognize the proof before me today that death is not the end of life. With this book, I also intend to contribute to the debate by bringing forth indisputable evidence that you will discover in these pages. But beyond simply wanting to prove that life continues after death, I have hoped to explore how this communication between two worlds, between the living and the dead, is established. I question the mediums relentlessly. What happens to us when our body vanishes into dust? What happens to our consciousness after death? For we continue to be, of this I'm certain, but what is the nature of our being? Are we exactly the same person we were during our lifetime on earth, or does our personhood evolve? What happens during the first few weeks following our death? Where do we go? Who do we meet? Who is the being my father became after his death? Who communicated with me? I invite you to discover what months of investigation have permitted me to understand. It is dizzying. Each one of the six chapters to follow is the portrait of a medium and presents in its entirety the test seance conducted with him or her. I have never gone as far in any of my interviews as I did in these. They shed an unparalleled light on the end of life, death, and the afterlife, and the communication with the dead. In the final chapter, psychiatrist Christophe Faure a specialist in caring for people at the end of life, discusses the specific features of the path of grief and offers us some kind advice regarding death and mediumship. Writing this book changed my life. Perhaps it will change yours. We'll be right back with more words from The Test by Stefan Alix. You're listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shades of the Afterlife. I'm Sandra Champlain. We're reading from the book The Test by Stefan Alix. Now this is where it's going to get exciting because I'm taking a 260 page book and trying to paraphrase it in one episode. So bear with me. I trust if this resonates with you, you'll pick up a copy of the book or get it on Kindle. So he starts off with Henry. And remember, seance is just another word for sitting. I am feeling very apprehensive about this seance. I have known Henry for years, and there is a true friendship between us. I met him for the first time in November 2006 to test him, and even back then, with a photo of my brother Thomas, who had died five years earlier in Afghanistan. The result of that first seance was impressive. He knew nothing about me, yet there is no doubt in my mind that Henry communicated with my brother that day. As far as doubts, though, I still have my fair share. I came out of the small apartment where we had met feeling torn between astonishment and resistance. Astonishment at the fact that he had given me an incredible number of very specific details about my brother, his life, his personality, the particular circumstances of his death, etc., Details that he could not, in total objectivity, have gotten from anyone else except for my brother himself, who had been dead for five years. And 
resistance because what the evidence was telling me that my brother had spoken to me after his death was something my mind was not yet ready to accept. The resistance is tenacious and clings on to the smallest doubt, taking advantage of the slightest opportunity it is given. On that day in November 2006, for example, what bothered me most was that at no point had Henry ever said that my brother's name was Thomas. He had described in detail the way Thomas had died in a car accident, his wound to the head, to the place where it happened, but he had not said his name. This seemed paradoxical. Why, since Henry claimed that he was with us in the room, didn't my brother simply say, with me in mind, hey, by the way, tell him my name is Thomas. This seemed both incomprehensible and illogical to me, and this small annoyance diminished the completely unexplained fact that Henry had also given me a great deal of other true information. I have since discovered the reason for this apparent contradiction, and it is one of the things that is so important for me to explore with the six mediums who have agreed to take part in my proposed test. In very basic terms, this point is crucial, and we will come back to it throughout this book. The part of a medium's brain that perceives the words, images, and information on behalf of the deceased is not the same part of the brain that verbalizes this information to the living person who has come to see them. Researcher Julie Beischel explained this to me during an interview I had had with her in Tucson, Arizona a few years ago. Names and dates pose a problem for many mediums. I think this is because this kind of information depends on the left brain. A name is a label and numbers and labels are managed by the left hemisphere of the brain. We think that mediumship is a process that occurs primarily via the right brain. Elements that are normally filtered by our left brain are therefore more difficult to perceive and interpret. A parallel can be made to the moment a person first wakes up. In that instant, it is possible that you retain the last dream you had just had. It is there, you can feel it, the memory of it is ingrained in you with all of its powers and evocations. But once you move or stretch, and before you get up, it has withered away. Curiously, when you try to make a note of it by writing it down, or by telling your spouse about it, the words you use actually destroy a part of the dream. By saying it, or by putting it down in writing, you are reducing it to words. It reconstructs itself. It almost becomes something else. In fact, you have just passed from the right brain, which dreams, to the left brain, which is trying to describe the dream. Things get stuck. You still hold vague sensation of the fragments of the dream, but despite your efforts, you are not able to find the words. A medium's experience, as we are going to find out, is a little bit like that. During a seance, they must both remain in the dream, that delicate space of fragile perception where they are in contact with the deceased, and tell you what is happening with words. The ability to do this permanent back and forth without altering one's perceptions is the secret of being a good medium. 
So now this is Sandra back, not the author. I want to remind you that the things that were in the coffin were a long, thin paintbrush, a tube of acrylic white paint, the father's compass, a paperback book called The Tartar Step, and a small note in an envelope. And his father's name was Jean-Paul. This is the point where I have to just pick and choose what I'm going to tell you because, again, I can't get through the whole book. Each chapter with each medium, he goes on in detail with absolutely everything that happened. Lots and lots of evidence. I am going to do my best. The medium Henry gives him the name Paul or Jean Paul. He says, does that mean anything to you? He says, yes, as his father's name is Jean Paul. He goes on to talk more about the father, the father's health, his stomach issues, things about his mother. He says, in your family at one time, was there someone who had a snake? And the author says, yes, me. The author this whole time did his very best not to show any emotion and just give yeses and nos. The author goes on to describing a lot more about the medium, the medium's past, and some other evidence that he brings through about the author's life and about relatives, things about the father, but not yet about the things that are in the coffin. Henry the medium does start talking about the casket. He's talking about his father. He's saying, yes, he's showing me the casket. Everything is white. There must have been fabric inside, white satin in the casket. Yes, says Stefan. Henry continues, could we say there is something in his casket or that things were put beside him by his loved ones? The author says, oh, now we're getting there. The medium says, he's having me feel several things. Henry points to my head and my heart. Why this sudden and so intimate remark? Henry never mentioned our bond. To the people who love him, friends and family, I'm hearing his voice in a whisper, very far away, hearing peace. I didn't hear because Henry had murmured and I made him repeat it. Peace. By this he means he is at peace. He has several objects with him. I'm trying to understand. Can we say there is something that has traveled that was once overseas? I hold back any untimely show of emotion, but the expression, something that has traveled, makes me instantly think about the compass. Once again, I put myself in my father's place, and I imagine him having to evoke these objects without using words. Yes, there you have it. That's probably it. He cannot say words, but can only share sensations with Henry. Their zone of dialogue and communication is not located in a world of words, but in a world of images and feelings. And what is the feeling of a compass? I allow myself to just say yes. I don't know what it is, something that has traveled overseas, that someone has put with him. That makes sense. He's insisting strongly on this. It's with me. Yes, I heard, but I didn't see what it is. It's like an intention of the heart, a gesture. With his hand, he's picking up dirt or sand. He's letting it escape, you see, as if everything was turning into powder. Sand, I say? Yes, what he's holding in his hand is like sand, and he's going like this. You don't know what it is? Now I feel a shock, and I'm very shaken, but I don't show anything. 
such true emotion because I have the feeling that my father is trying very hard. Even I couldn't have thought of that. Once I realized how difficult it might be to give the title of the novel I placed in his casket, and to think that on the way to our meeting this morning, I had spoken to my father out loud, asking him to try to mention the book out of all four objects. What synchronicity between my act of thinking specifically about the difficulty Papa would have in naming the book for me and the fact that it was precisely this difficult point that comes out during the seance. The Tartar Step. What could better suggest the desert step than a fistful of sand and let it escape from his hand? A movement that Henry is reproducing before my eyes. Despite my turmoil, I allow myself to say, yes, that's quite telling. But why did he use an image rather than a word? I can't tell you anything else. The author concludes this chapter with medium Henry, really feeling that he brought through evidence of his loved ones. Although I didn't mention it all here, he got things in detail about his father, his brother, his grandfather, his grandmother, his mother. And he feels like the book title with sand is what Henry was trying to do with the sand. And perhaps the compass was what was overseas with them. We don't know how difficult it is to communicate from the afterlife. And we host regular medium classes online with our great medium tutors, Carrie and Phil, and they said it all comes through feeling. When we get back from the break, I want to introduce you to Dr. Julie Beischel. She has a few words that I think will help understand how mediums operate. She's tested quite a few of them, and I really wish that we could ask them for specific information and know that it comes through One woman, bless her soul, emailed me not too long ago, hoping to get a password for somebody in the afterlife. It's very difficult when we are grieving, and I wish loved ones could come in with that much detail, maybe sometime. So we'll be back. You're listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shades of the Afterlife. I'm Sandra Champlain, and we're reading from the book The Test by Stefan Alix. The next chapter goes into his medium reading with a medium by the name of Dominique. While Dominique gives him lots of information about family members and his father, but doesn't quite get what he's looking for, and that's the evidence of what he put in the casket. Let's remember it was a paintbrush, an acrylic tube of paint a compass, and a paperback book, and then a small note in an envelope. So at the very end of this chapter, Dominique senses that Stefan is frustrated, and she assumes that there was something else there. He said there was. So she assumes it's a sentence that he wanted. So many people have a secret message that they want to bring through a medium, but that wasn't it. So She said, we cannot demand from our loved ones. And he, knowing that he's writing a book, was talking to his dad, like, please give her some information. What comes out of her mouth is a book. So clearly there was a book. And as she goes on, words come out of her mouth. And her words are, oh, I don't know. A paintbrush, drawing paper, a tube of paint. And there it was. Stefan asks her if she just made that up, 
And she said it just came into her imagination. That's how mediums work, through our imagination. She says, it just came to me. You know, it just sometimes does that spontaneously. So she had the book, the paintbrush, and the paint. Next, I want you to hear some words from Dr. Julie Beischel. Dr. Beischel is the Director of Research at the Winbridge Research Center. She received her PhD in pharmacology and toxicology with a minor in microbiology and immunology from the University of Arizona. For over 15 years, Dr. Beischel has worked full-time studying mediums. So let's listen to a brief clip of her talking to Jeffrey Mishlove from New Thinking Aloud. When they talk about the word psi, you can substitute that for psychic. And when they talk about somatic versus survival evidence that comes through mediums, they're talking about psychic information that they can pick off an individual versus mediumship that's coming from a discarnate individual. Let's listen. My research partner, Mark Bacuzzi, and I, when we started the Winbridge Institute in 2008, we, we were interested in all the parapsychology topics. We wanted to study everything. And in 2017, we decided we're serving no one by trying to serve everyone. So we created the Winbridge Research Center, which is a nonprofit, and we moved all the afterlife research mediumship to the uh, new Winbridge Research Center mm -hmm. so that now we know. So the institute still exists, but it is doing normalizing, optimizing, and utilizing psi functioning. And then the Winbridge Research Center focuses on alleviating suffering around dying death and what comes next. And I'm also interested in other kinds of after-death communication. We refer to mediumship as assisted after-death communication. Mm -hmm. So the medium is the one actually experiencing the communication, and then she shares the messages she receives with you. So we call that assisted. But then uh, there's what's called requested so that you can uh, engage in certain practices or using certain technologies or products that can where you're asking your deceased one today i'm going to pay attention and look for a feather and then it gives your deceased loved one an opportunity to try and show you a feather today and then so that you both can be um, working on mm. that today so there's things like that where you can request an mm. abc there's a lot of research actually with what are called spontaneous after-death communication experiences. I think the most prevalent one is the sense of presence, feeling that the person is around. The dreams are a big one too. I mean, there's all kinds of spontaneous after-death communication, flickering lights and, you know, electronic things. And uh, when you can smell an odor, that a scent that reminds you of the person, oh, like, why would I be smelling cigar smoke? There's no cigar around here. Oh, it's to remind me of my grandfather, things like that. That. So there's lots of different kinds of ways that people can mm -hmm. have these spontaneous after-death communication experiences. A few years ago, we published a replication study, readings with 20 different mediums. I think it was 58 readings under various levels of blinding, but at the maximum, five levels of blinding. We used to call it quintuple blind protocol, so five levels of blinding. And that eliminated all the normal explanations for where a medium could be getting her information. So in the protocol, it's just me and a medium on the phone. All we have is the first name of a deceased person. We don't know anything else. I serve as the proxy sitter 
for the absent sitter. And then I ask the medium specific questions about that deceased person. What do they look like? What's their personality? What were their hobbies or activities? What was their cause of death? Did they have any specific messages for the sitter? And is there anything else you can tell me about that person? So very specific things that you couldn't just know from the name. So the first question people ask is, well, how does the medium find the right Bob? Well, the, the way that they experience it is that Bob finds them. We talk about uh, it's receive versus retrieve, like picking up a ringing telephone, like they're receiving the communication. They're not out there searching for the answers. And that's really important because people, I think, because of the misrepresentation often in the media, people think that the medium can give them whatever they want to hear. Well, they can't. It's like you can't make a person tell you what you want to hear from them. All she can do is listen and experience the communication, which is usually all five senses. Mm -hmm. They smell things and hear things and, and feel things in their body and see things. And then they just uh, sort of translate that to the sitter, the living person wanting to hear from the dead person. That's all they can do. And and so what we've showed in the um, replication study was, yeah, when a person scores for accuracy, the reading that the medium did, we did target versus decoy. Mm-hmm. So when the so the the sitter scores a target reading where the medium was given the name of their deceased person, and then they score a decoy reading where the medium did a reading for someone else, and they don't they can't tell which reading is which. And then statistically, what we do is compare the scoring of those two, and we did find people scored target readings statistically significantly higher than they scored control readings. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is that. It's not like 100% versus 0%. There's some, right, people are only so different. There's going to be some things, even in a control reading, in a decoy reading, that are going to fit your person just because people are only so different. But the difference between the scores was statistically significant. So we did demonstrate that uh, mediums can report accurate and specific information about the deceased with no prior knowledge, without any feedback during or even after the reading. We don't even tell them how they did afterwards. Um, And without using fraud or deception, there's no way they can look somebody up or anything like that. So we call that phenomenon anomalous information reception. So we've demonstrated anomalous information reception. The path that we chased was the medium's experiences, the phenomenology. For eons, there's been this survival versus side debate. Is it Sigh with the living or is it survival of consciousness? They, you know, we wrote papers, like we made a new term because whatever they're doing is sigh. So you can't say sigh, survival. So we made survival sigh and somatic sigh. If you ask a flippin' medium, they they know what somatic sigh feels like and they know what survival sigh feels like and they're not the same. Mm. And it's much different in modern times than it was when people studied mediums in the 1880s, when the mediums went into a full trance and they didn't have any conscious experience of the reading. These mediums are fully awake and aware. Um, And so after the reading, you can ask them things about uh, their experiences. We published a paper where we did quantitative and qualitative analyses of their descriptions. I think it was, it was over a hundred mediums. I think 130 around their mediums. Describe your experiences when communicating with the deceased. Describe your experiences when retrieving information about the living person during like a psychic reading. And there were quantitative and qualitative differences in the way that they described those things. They're very different. And we need to, if we take people's 
word for it when we study pain. We need to take people's word for it when we study uh, their experiences of sigh. What we were hearing from our team of mediums was that because of the way mediums are portrayed on TV, sitters were coming to them and getting disappointed because they were thinking that's how it was going to go. And that's not how it works in real life. They're not 100 percent accurate and they can't get you what you want. You have to let it, you know, and every medium is different. And it's a three person team, right? The medium is only one person. You're involved as a sitter. Your deceased person is involved. And it's it's communicate. It's human communication. So that always gets messy. So created this fact sheet with some tips, some do's and don'ts Mm -hmm. for sitters when they're interested in getting a mediumship reading. So at least whoever you go to, whatever medium you go to here, you've optimized your role in the three person process. Dr. Beischel does offer some good do's and don'ts. She says, do choose a medium with care. Choose one trusted by friends or vetted by an organization that uses transparent testing procedures. Do understand that a medium who charges more money or has more social media followers is not necessarily better or worse than any other medium. Don't give information beyond basic responses like, yes, no, I'm not sure, or maybe. Do remember that your grieving can affect how you experience things, including a medium reading. Don't put too much pressure on the experience to prove your discarnate is still around. Just know it. Do record the reading or take notes so you can review it later. Don't use codes or riddles to prove the medium is communicating with your discarnate. Do ask for information about how your discarnate will communicate with you after the reading. Yesterday, someone told me, don't pay more for a medium reading than a good haircut. You can get a good medium reading in a half an hour. And I really am of the belief that all mediums should give you a 10-minute guarantee. And that first 10 minutes, if you're not feeling they're giving good information, or they may not feel a connection with your loved one, that you can stop the reading and either reschedule or not, but you do not pay. If you want to see me get a little upset about mediums, go to YouTube and type in Sandra Champlain Rant. It is time for our break. We'll be back. You're listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shades of the Afterlife. I'm Sandra Champlain. The book I'm talking about is called The Test by Stéphane Alix, a French journalist looking for evidence of the afterlife. Although I am just picking and choosing the sentences where the medium talks about the things in the casket, there is so much more. The author met with a medium named Christelle, who also gave plenty of evidence about Stéphane's loved ones. And at the very end of the sitting, of course, Stefan didn't feel he got the information about what was put in the coffin until finally the medium blurted out a long, thin piece of wood like a paintbrush. He also worked with a fellow named Pierre. Some of the things Pierre told him is that he was being shown a windmill. He asked if he lived in a windmill. And no, his parents lived in the country in a place known as the Windmill. Pierre told Stefan that his father was talking a lot about books. He always had the desire to learn, always a scholar. Stefan said, that's accurate. Pierre said, this man has a lot of character. He wasn't necessarily very accessible, though. Pierre continued, he was someone who educated other people as a teacher. And yes, the father was an instructor a teacher. 
Pierre said, there's an object, something shiny. He's telling me that it belonged to him. Yes, an object with a round, shiny top. And there's something silky, like satin. Does that make sense to you? Yes, he's telling me a story that seems to be about love. Is there someone who put an envelope in the casket? I'm not going to answer you, Stefan said. The off-white envelope Pierre saw in the beginning contained these few words, I love you, Papa, and I signed it, your big boy. That's what my parents usually called me. Yes, what's in the envelope is about love. At the end of the reading, Pierre said, the round object, it could be a metal, or is it a compass? Stefan says, the seance has surprised me. As Pierre so quickly saw the letter I left in the casket, the book and the round object being a compass, and only an hour before I asked my father if he could choose to talk about the book and the compass. But at the same time, Pierre's explanations of those other mediums are allowing me to understand the complexity of what I am requesting from my father. In spite of everything, He's not doing that badly, is he? The last medium Stefan sees is Florence. And again, there's so much about her, her life, her beliefs, different validations of the father and other people in the author's life. But at the very end, Stefan says, I put things in his casket and I asked him to give me this information through a medium. That's the challenge. Florence says, that's a lot of pressure. And then says, no, he's been here since this morning. He's getting used to life after life because he didn't really believe in it very much before. He was a little narrow-minded about what we're doing here. But he's telling me, little by little, as I've gone further, I'm understanding things. You're helping me. I have something like a pencil. Did you put a pencil in his casket? I have a stretched out shape in his casket. What is it? A pencil? She says. He said, just tell me what he's telling you. It honestly looks like a pencil or a paintbrush. I don't know if that's what it is. I don't answer, but I acknowledge what Florence says. In spite of the apprehension, she has a clarity of spirit that allows her to obtain very accurate and precise details from the deceased. And what she's just said is indisputable. A long paintbrush. That is exactly one of the four objects I put in the casket. Not a fat one, not a square or a thick one. No, a long and thin paintbrush. I am so overwhelmed but I don't want to let anything show in front of Florence, and I don't react to what she says. She continues, Voila, and then I have a paper, a little note, to my father, for my father, or to my papa. He says it's something like that. Remember that with the four shapes, I put that in an envelope that I told him papa I loved him. She says, okay, who is Paul? I say, I don't know. Jean-Paul, in relation to what? A friend he found. I don't know why at that moment, 
that I said, I don't know. But Paul was my father's uncle, who had died and disappeared during World War I. And my father's name was Jean-Paul. Your father is showing me a drawing, as if it was something he had painted, as if he had taken that famous paintbrush and started to paint. What I'm seeing now is strange. He's taking a painting and then putting paint on it. Did you put painting things in? This can't be possible that you put painting things in a casket. Did you? I don't answer, but I observe that for Florence, the presence of a paintbrush is now certain. Tubes of paint. Yes, that's it. Because in fact, he's painting again, thanks to you. He is sending me the image of himself painting. So the paintbrush and the tube of paint you put in the casket. He must have found a canvas on the other side. This is unbelievable, I think. And I'm flabbergasted that this came so easily to her. She continues, I'm in his place. I'm seeing him paint. I also have a kind of low wall overlooking a valley. I have trees. I don't even know where I am. I see this landscape through his eyes as if I were in his place. I don't know whether it's a place that he likes very much. Did he live in the country in a similar spot? A small wall, a little nook, and trees in front? It's pretty calm. He's putting me in front. I tell her your description actually resembles the very place he was fond of where he lived in the country. A terrace that overhung a little bit with a wall that went down. One of the last pictures I took of my father a few weeks before his death shows him sitting in this exact spot. His gaze is resting on the top of the trees that extend all the way to the horizon. He's in his wicker chair at the edge of the gravel terrace, a terrace that ends with a little overhang that we had built together more than 30 years before. This image is so him. That's the place he wanted to die. He just transported me there without saying a word, Florence tells me. She says, I'm myself again, in my place. I see the infinity of where I am, and I see all of you too. But I know that I will see you and talk with you again. Did you see him in a dream? That happens, yes. And actually in three or four vivid dreams with him. And he appeared a little quiet. He's putting down roots again. When I tell you that he's in the middle of developing, maybe he shouldn't be asked too many questions. It's better to let him say what he wants to say. A year and a half is short. He's still in the process of creating. He's a nice man, a beautiful soul. He's fine where he is. He's doing better than he did at the end of life. No more suffering. Where he is now, I sense that he is calm, surrounded by people that he loves, and he's not alone. No, he's not alone. And neither are we. We never are. And some final words from the author. As I said before, writing this book changed my life. I had what was perhaps a naive idea about communication with the dead, a number of questions, and many preconceived notions. Working on this book, 
performing these tests, and spending many hours in ongoing discussion with mediums allowed me to enter into their lives, into the intimacy of their perceptions, and to better understand and sense in myself that access to the invisible world is logically possible. Beyond the positive and incontestable results of the test, the similarity of the information about my father's life, death, and personality, as well as the mention of deceased members of our family, and the countless identical details that each medium provided without fail, together form the proof that my father was never absent during the seances. Each of the six mediums described the same person to me, because that person is alive. The six mediums entered into communication with my father. My father, like all the people we love who have left us, is still alive somewhere else. The reality is vaster than we are able to imagine. Death does not exist. The bonds of love persist and hold strong. We are bound to one another forever. I don't know about you, but this fills me with energy. Richard Bach said, Don't be dismayed by goodbyes. A farewell is necessary before meeting again. And meeting again after moments or lifetimes is certain for those who are friends. I say friends, family, loved ones, pets. We get to see them all again. We live in this illusion called life. It's very painful. It's most of the time not very fun. But it is for the growth, the education of your soul, to learn to love, to learn to forgive, to learn to make a difference for another. So go out and have a lot of experiences. I hope you enjoyed this. As a reminder, come visit me at wedontdie.com. We host the free Sunday gathering with medium demonstration, and we offer some wonderful medium classes. There's nothing like having the experience of thinking it's just your imagination, but you're giving someone real detailed evidence about their loved one. I'm Sandra Champlain. You've been listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Make sure and check out all our shows on the iHeartRadio app or by going to iHeartRadio.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. 
Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.